0: Doing the right thing is also the right thing for business. It's always the right time to do the right thing.
1: This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies, and most disruptive startups. Great ideas packaged a certain way want to spread. They want to be told to someone else. To be simple, surprising, and significant. The key to unlocking viral creativity is to make it rapidly scalable. This is Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan. Today, I'm speaking with Raj Vavilala, Chief Marketing, Sales, and Product Officer at GEHA, also known as the Government Employees Health Association. Thank you for considering GEHA Medical Plans, a nonprofit association providing medical and dental plans to federal employees and retirees and their families. Raj's track record speaks for itself, from leading Health IQ to become a top 10 Medicare agency to spearheading effective marketing strategies at GuideWell and New York Life Insurance Company. But what are the unique challenges of marketing as a nonprofit organization? What strategies does GEHA employ to educate customers about their benefits? And how important is honest marketing in shaping the trust between GEHA and its members? Let's find out with Raj Bhavilala. Raj, you have a long background in the industry. Some of that's been on the for-profit basis. Some of this is now on the nonprofit basis. You're one of the largest health and dental benefit providers for federal employees and their families. So first of all, how is it different when you think like a nonprofit? when you are a mission-driven marketer? How does that change your day-to-day?
0: Thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, it's a great question to start with. For us, what's mostly important is to make sure that the members are educated around the benefits that they have access to. So we spend a lot of time talking through various benefits. How does it affect their health? Where are updated their health status. What does their individual journey look like? What does their family journey look like? So being a mission-driven marketer, is really important for us to make sure that our members continue on their journey of health and wellness. So we focus a lot of our energy in education. We focus a lot of energy in informing Members even post sale about how to use the benefits, how to maximize the coverage that they have. That would be the largest difference from a commercial business, wherein we are more focused around the member health and then how it helps us grow the business come secondarily. For
1: people who don't know how this type of business or industry works in relation to the federal government, as I understand it, if you're a federal employee, there's a number of options of providers you can choose from that are all managed by the Office of Personal Management or OPM. They're your client. And there's a certain type of open enrollment period, like you would find in for-profit healthcare as well, but it's kind of the open season. So that's the point of where people can choose, people can change. But so some of what you have to do is just educate people on how to use their benefits, correct? And some of it is that in that open season, that's the point where you have to differentiate a bit more and say, you know, pick us from this maybe handful of choices you might have.
0: Yeah, that is accurate. So OPM is a tremendous partner and we work with them right from plan design and onwards to the various agencies on how do we show up in their offices to talk to their members about these benefits. So every year, OPM and the various agencies that come under it, they hire employees. And so when a new hire comes in, that is the first time that they're exposed to this concept of purchasing or enrolling into an insurance that's provided to OPM. So that's the first time they take a look at all the choices that they have and they settle in. And then towards the end of the year, there is an annual open season cycle where every employee, all existing employees get the chance to continue on the coverage that they have or switch coverage. So along throughout the year, we work with OPM to create products that would offer an advance their health, the member health. And so the the open season timeframe, each member comes in, takes a look at the product that they have now, assesses their health, and we work with them to understand if they need to continue on the product or switch to a different product. And that's the causation that every employee has with themselves and with their families to see if they want to continue and move to. So we will have members joining throughout the year, but towards the end of the year, there is a big rush because everybody gets their chance. It's very similar to commercial insurance that you or I might have from our companies that you get a chance towards the end of the year to switch if you're an existing employee.
1: For anyone listening who's a CMO, who might have this type of, you know, be in an industry that has this enrollment period, or they might just be a CMO that has a seasonal push, like end of year where a lot of people have like holiday marketing is where a lot of purchases come from. So how long is that, is that like a three month period? Is that October, November, December, or is it something different?
0: Four to five weeks. So uh, pretty much every healthcare CMO who was listening to this uh, it is very similar to Medicare. It's very similar to Alka. It's very similar to group insurance. But unlike those businesses, it's a very compressed timeframe uh, with the federal uh, employees base. And there is not a lot of open market uh, competition, if you will, like those businesses.
1: Meaning you don't need to show up in a Google search for someone looking for, I, I'm a federal employee. Who do I pick? Correct. Because- there's very defined choices and define how you interact with them.
0: You're right. You know, in the Medicare space, for example, you see a number of ads and you uh, generally, a, a beneficiary might want to understand more about what the companies are. So they may go to Google and say, talk to me about Medicare companies. In an opium space, there is le- a little set of predefined carriers that the employee can select from. So they go through the listing, they look at all the companies there, and then they sometimes research those companies, sometimes research those products. And then once they are educated in terms of what those offers are, then they make the enrollment day. They don't necessarily go to Google to search for what does my federal agency offer me as insurance. That's not the journey for shopping in that instance.
1: And then how much, how important then as a marketer, is the customer experience, or if you will, potential customer experience. They're not a customer yet. There's more predefined options. I would guess there's more face-to-face type marketing, like like call someone up or visit someone in a fair, or it's probably more of a one-on-one because it's more defined. Is the experience they have important? Meaning like, is, is it a proxy for the experience they'll have as an actual customer that you educate them and answer their questions and are patient and are responsive and all those things? Does that become part of what you need to communicate as a marketer?
0: It is even more important. And here's why. The customer experience specifically. In a commercial space, when you experience a product, and you have certain baseline understanding of what the experience looks like, you know what to look for or look against when you go search in Google, for example. In this space, you're relying on your colleagues. Your experience is your baseline within this ecosystem, and you generally rely on your colleagues who also have the insurance because you have a fixed set of options.
1: So someone in the cubicle over or office over, you say like, hey, I'm new here. I got these options. Who did you pick? Why did you pick them? So word of mouth is going to be very important here too. In some
0: yes, very important. That is why our experience thresholds are even higher in terms of what we aspire to be. Because somebody might have experienced a few features of the product and a few features of our operating model. But the person next in their cubicle might have experienced something different. So we have to tell our current members, or prospective members, not only what they consume, but also what they have access to that they can consume that they might not already have access to. So the threshold of experience is not just what you experience, but also what you could potentially experience in the future. A good example would be individuals and families. So if you are a single person and you have a certain experience and now you have family upcoming, Your experience is determined by somebody else's experience. Your understanding is determined by somebody else's experience because you haven't experienced it yet. So you would ask your cubicle mate to say, hey, I'm about to have a family. How's your insurance compared? Because you've not experienced it yet. So we better tell this member, we also can help you with your family experience and how that experience would look like, even if they have not experienced it yet. Hopefully that makes sense. So the threshold is even higher. And I actually, in, in our work, when, when we do a lot of
1: education work or we do a lot of thought leadership work, especially when we need those ideas to like be communicated, not just to the person we're communicating to, but they need to communicate it to someone else. We have this, when you say higher threshold, it, it resonates with me because we have this, this vision of that where we say like the goal, if we're communicating something or we're communicating something for our clients, it's not just that. You know, we communicate something that sounds good, I mean, we wanna sound good. It's not just we communicate something that sounds good, and you, the audience, understands it, although we want you to understand it. The goal is that we communicate something so well that you understand it and can communicate it to someone else almost as good as we could do on our own. And that's a pretty high bar, that your message is so strong and so sticky and so simple, in our words, simple, surprising, and significant, that it can be passed along like a photocopy that hopefully doesn't denigrate in quality with each copy as its message. It holds its pristine message quality. That's a high bar. And if you want your, the guy in the cubicle or the woman in the cubicle next door telling their person and they have a family and you don't, you need that. You need that. That's a high bar.
0: It's a high bar. I love that. Simple, significant, surprising. I I love that. I think that's That's the threshold. It really is the threshold, because this is influencer marketing to the nth degree, because this is a fixed set of audiences. Just imagine a new employee joining a company. They come in, they get into their cubicle. They're just trying to figure out their job. And along the way, they get this email that says, yeah, you know, X number of days to finish your enrollment. You're trying to learn your job. You're trying to learn your colleagues. You're trying to figure all of that out. Along the way, you have to figure out your insurance. And that is where it's really important to be simple. It is really important to, I love the significant part, it's really important to explain that you are their partner and you're going to help them navigate through, because life changes you 10 years ago is different than you now.
1: And I know that. And I I consider, you know, I've written a number of books about personal finance. I know a lot about the topic, but even for myself, I have a a two-year-old and one-year-old. once we had kids, some things that surprised me that I never thought about was, you know, my wife went into the hospital, went into labor. She's the superstar. I'm, I'm the supporter there. And, you know, we have pretty good insurance. We had maxed out all our deductibles. And then suddenly we had a child born and there's a new deductible for the child that we didn't know was coming. So suddenly there were all these, we thought, oh, we've maxed out the deductible, we're fine. And suddenly there's a new deductible, because like, oh, there's a new life form here. After the actual labor, they're separate. And so that surprised us. And I thought I was a pretty knowledgeable person. So it can be confusing, and particularly when new family and other things occur. New
0: families moving, and typically it's our health issues. And then part of of what makes our product and part of why I enjoy what I do is we help people in their greatest moment of need, right? I mean, nobody's looking to consume health insurance because they wanted to consume it. They they have a need. Either they are preventing something or they are attacking something. They're dealing with the situation. And it makes that navigation all the more important to explain to someone how to get the best of their health benefits. And that's that drives our company to make sure that our members are well taken care of. For other people listening
1: and trying to understand how you work and how you think and what they can learn from it what are your key channels you're not doing google search you're not doing sem and seo you're not doing probably i'm guessing broad-based advertising because you have very focused you do care a lot about word of mouth you do care a lot about customer or potential customer experience what are your key channels
0: our key channels are what everybody probably uses but in a very different way so we do have digital assets but they are used to basically digitize their reputation. They're not used to do you know, global searches and try to sell product all the time. They really talk about who we are as a company so we can expand our reach. So for example, we we execute a lot of health and wellness programs, such as the Learn to Swim program, honoring the Joe Delaney Foundation along with the Kansas City Chiefs. And so we use digital channels to talk about that program and we advance it. That's a way for us to advance the reach and influence we have on the company, along the way, people will look at that program and they'll get a sense of who we are as a company and the value system we hold. Is that the
1: differentiating point? I mean, are the products, because obviously these are government programs, they probably have to have certain guidelines, they probably have to be standardized. Do they become, the products are very similar in some way commoditized, so you have to differentiate on like who we are as a company, our values, or something that makes you feel good about who you're getting Healthcare insurance provided by
0: is that the differentiation? It's one of the elements. It's a, it's a great question. It's one of the elements, but overall, being a nonprofit, it allows us to have other assets that we can use to deploy into market. So what what I believe and our company believes is product is what somebody consumes throughout the usage of this insurance plan. So it's not just that they bought some benefits and a price associated with it. It's also the network that they access. It's also the call center that they call in to get their answer. It's the app that they use to get their services. So we plan on differentiating on the package because we really believe in the package being strong. And that's where seamless experiences, where you're using a phone center or an app, whether it's timely information. If somebody, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. If somebody's searching for an insurance company, generally they're trying to search for their phone number. They're trying to find what the phone number is. The logical assumption is that this person's trying to call. There's nothing preventing us from sending a text message that says, hey, do you want us to call you? And we can have the right time to call. So it's a simple tweak on experience that comes through the whole package that helps us advance our value proposition around simplicity of usage of the product. Because ultimately we want to make it like really simple to use, really clear to use. So people are not worried about figuring out how the system works. They can worry about the problem that they're dealing with and the system can help them and we can help them navigate the system.
1: Is that why it sounds like in terms of organization, I mean, your title, you're a CMO, you're a chief marketing officer, but you also have chief sales officer, chief product officer as part of your title. Was that deliberate? Is that how historically it's been as the company? Is that because of how we market and sell and product and they're all interrelated and we're just going to put it in a title so it has to be interrelated? and work together and be integrated? Is that historically how it is? Is that how other people do it or is that unique here?
0: Uh, I think there is an element of uniqueness and the element of uniqueness really is the, the leadership team that I'm a part of uh, along working with our CEO Art Nisa and the board of directors. We are very collaborative and that's the culture we have in the company of being very, very hyper-collaborative. And sales and marketing were together as, of, as departments before. When I joined, uh, we added product to the mix because we really believe in product being the enabler for growth. And so that's how all those came together. I'm also accountable for experience. And so we make sure that not only do we create products that add value, but they are consumed the right way and we measure those. So it's a unique element of GHA but it's also because of how the leadership team actually works and collaboration being placed at a premium in our company. In our professional journey,
1: we often discover that no achievement is a solo act. We're more like Destiny's Child rather than Beyonce. It's a symphony of efforts harmonized by teamwork and a shared vision. In the realm of marketing, the spirit of collaboration becomes vital, acting as the creative crucible where groundbreaking ideas take shape. However, hyper-collaboration transcends the conventional bounds of teamwork. It's about cultivating a culture where openness reigns where each participant feels valued. And every idea, no matter how out of the box, is given due consideration. It's about trust, inclusivity, and the belief that we is greater than me. That our collective wisdom is far greater than the sum of individual insights. What's something different in the way that you work that you don't think is common?
0: We bring everybody into the fold in terms of conversations and things that we do. We meet multiple times uh, as a leadership group, and we meet multiple times uh, a week and a month as extended leadership groups. So there isn't a management team member who's not aware of exactly what's happening in the company, at least on a monthly basis, if not more. And we are very engaged in terms of each other's projects. So I might be running a growth project, but there will be members who are across enterprise that will be part of the growth project even if they have nothing to do functionally in terms of contributing to the project because we believe in being inclusive we believe that good ideas come can come from anywhere just the number of times we meet and the depth of the conversations that we have and the transparency of information that we provide that is different than what i've generally seen and that's where i really value the, the fabric of who we are as a company in terms of being collaborative. Hence, I say hyper-collaborative because we really, really take it to heart. Uh, our CEO, Art Niza, he actually like, listens to an, a lot of feedback that comes straight from members and straight from our customer advocates and then passes down to us. And we spend hours talking through issues that are across the enterprise that we really take to heart and fix right away. And so that's very important as a value system that we hold. And what would be
1: an example of that? What would be something that, you know, someone messages something, it's an individual person's issue that comes up that you fix it for that person and it sounds like you fix it for the system, the company. So maybe that won't be a problem in the future. What would be an example of something you wouldn't expect a leadership team to
0: tackle? Uh, it could be a, something as simple as somebody reaching out and asking about what's the processing time of a particular issue. And we take that particular record. And not only do we help that person if they, were, they didn't have the right farm or anything like that, we also go investigate the process behind the scenes to say, why would this issue even come up? Can we do something proactively to communicate on this? Is there something that we should think about structurally from product or anything else that we need to change? So that is just a trigger for us. It's just another listening post to understand where we can also focus our energies. Most companies have their agenda. That set out to say, this is a roadmap on what we need to do. But we always listen to what else is happening. And Art's really good about that and engaging his leadership group to really take these situations to heart and fix them right away.
1: What kind of metrics are you using for this? Like, what are the ones that matter? You don't have as much of the broad funnel, but you do have, obviously, open season, open enrollment. You, I mean, that's the kind of bottom line metric. But what else are you doing to track this and sort of, you know, are there elements that are unique to being a mission-driven marketing organization? Things that you track that maybe you didn't track at your other past for-profit places you've been a leader at?
0: Great question. We track individual things like enrollment and leads and so on and so forth that everybody does. We track impressions, we track clicks, we track all of that. But what we also track is events and impact in the community. Like how many kids did we help learn how to spend? How many kids did we help by associating a big brother or big sister with them? How many community leaders did we honor for the contributions that they have made? How many scholars did we fund to get education and be future doctors and medical professionals. So we track all of those things. These
1: are all like kind of CSR, corporate social responsibility type programs that are part of your footprint and how you market that you talked about, like reveal kind of the values of the company, who the company is, which are part of that decision. These are all programs that that fall under there.
0: They are, and that's why they're part of my accountability because we believe they go together. It isn't separated out that this, this is our value proposition to the community that we live in and work in and that we want to advance. So we make conscious choices on those in terms of investing and funding, not just from a financial point of view, but the team and the resources that we put towards that to push those things forward.
1: And how do you think if word of mouth is, is important and it's especially important between colleagues or as we discussed the cubicle over, do you have any marketing programs that try to, to leverage that? You have like the sort of the quintessential back from the Web 1.0 days was like it was the button like tell a friend right? Like tell a friend about this. Are you trying to empower people to somehow communicate to their colleagues or communicate elsewhere or help each other out, help them understand to sort of facilitate this positive word of mouth?
0: There are regulations and rules in place in terms of what we could do in terms of creating like customer advocates or member advocates. It's unlike a commercial business, you couldn't offer like a referral program. So we don't do that. What we basically do is good work and we say good work, they'll carry the day. If you do good work, people will recognize good work and they will help their colleagues into the good work that we're doing. So we don't push active advocacy programs, uh, but we do make sure that we help the ones we help and that will carry into the future. And what's one thing that you wish you could do
1: better or different? Where do you think if you have your wish or can kind of wave a magic wand, you know, three years from now? and you're doing something else for GEHA, what would you like to do that you can't do now or is not so easy to do now?
0: Great question. What I would love to do is to expand our reach through various emerging channels to members who are probably not in the office anymore. There's a lot of members after post-COVID who are no longer in the office and they use various media to get through. So they're
1: still working for the federal government, but it's in a remote capacity.
0: Correct, so, so some of this, these members don't have access to some of our programs. And so when we run a health fair, for example, the, the ones in the office will get access to those services. The ones who are not in the office they won't get access to those services. So one of, if I had a magic wand, I would figure out a way that everybody who deserves those services or would like to take part in the service it could be a, some, something as simple as the right way to eat nutrition. It could be something more complicated in terms of measuring their blood sugar or diabetes to see if they need some help there. How can everybody get access to these programs? That's what I would figure out. Obviously technology has a play into it and obviously people have a play into it and how do we scale those assets to reach the the majority of people who may not be coming to an office anymore. Companies that truly flourish
1: are those that understand their power to shape the world around them. Yes, we wanna grow our business, but can we also grow our community? It's a mindset, a commitment to making a positive difference in everything that a company touches companies that understand this have staying power and they have the community goodwill built up to weather any unexpected adversity that may be on the horizon too
0: doing the right thing is also the right thing for business i've I've heard it a couple times on on your show to other cmos have said it it's it's always the right time to do the right thing and doing the right things is also good for business as the right thing so that's what I would, I would encourage any for-profit marketers to think about is when you do good work in the community and you do good work with your members and the communities that you serve and you really have a service-oriented attitude, the math will pencil out if you continue doing it. If you don't continue doing it, then it doesn't. You cannot look at something around corporate social responsibility as a transactional item. You have to continue to invest in your community. You have to continue to invest in your brand that way. And the math around growth will pencil out on its own. I've just had good fortune working for two large companies before who shared the same value system. And so they wouldn't be surprised by it. But maybe some other companies who probably don't look at it as a long term investment, they might want to think about it. We've been around for 85 plus years. And the essence of why we've been around is we've been a great company taking care of our members.
1: I think sometimes one of the things people miss a little bit about aligning. Either it's doing good work, delivering true value to your customer, or all of these things is that not only does it make sense in a long-term perspective, but it kind of future-proofs your business and your marketing from a lot of changes that happen in the short term. And I'll give you an example. For those who are marketing by Google search, there was a time when people would game Google search, right? It was like, okay, how can I trick Google into thinking, I'm really impressed. People would stuff like tons of keywords on a page, make it be like a lot of keywords or people would try to put things in image tags that reference things, even though the image wasn't about it, that point to it. And it worked at the beginning. So those were kind of short-term thinkers. They weren't adding value to the end person searching and they could get away with it for a time. But Google became more sophisticated. The algorithms became more sophisticated. Google started looking at things at like, you know, time on page. Are people just looking at your site for a little bit and leaving or staying on because they're really engaged, they're really learning something. So if you were someone, there was two ways to win. You could either be like, I'm gonna trick Google into thinking this, it or I'm gonna deliver really good content and value for that person looking at it so much so that they're gonna stay and you could win either way. If you pick door A, eventually Google would have figured you out and you wouldn't have future proof your business and you might've won for a bit, but you then would have lost if you pick door B and you had that focus on delivering value or doing the right thing or really trying to do it, no matter how Google changes their algorithm, you're going to be fine because Google wants to deliver a page that people want to see. So no matter how they define that, as long as you keep that front and center, you're going to be successful in the long run. And so that's why it's actually a powerful marketing strategy that protects your business and protects your marketing to add value and do the right
0: thing. You're absolutely right. I think the other part is you, we may, if a, if a marketer decides to take that route, you may trick the one programmer who's putting the algorithm or a team of programmers, right? But you're taking a big chance by thinking you will trick millions of members and customers who will come to the page. And that's what happens. And reputation could be destroyed easily. Right? It's one of the things, if somebody goes to a site and they realize that wasn't the value proposition that they were expecting, they will never go again. You could fix everything about it. So short-term gain, if you're offering something, but you don't actually have it and you just advertise fictitiously to get the member in, you will lose. So I think that's where great companies, GHB, and one of the great companies, we don't do those things. So we do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And I would tell younger team members in my past that were joined, it's like, you know, I could kind of do the short-term things like that. You're never going to get that member back. Make sure your product is right. Make sure all the delivery, all the fulfillment, all the value proposition that you have is right before you go to market. Because those early adopters won't come back again. And your reputation is more important than any immediate short-term gain.
1: And the only thing I'll add to that, because I know there's going to be some CMOs listening, and I talked to a number of CMOs, for instance, in financial services, maybe a cousin of insurance. And they're going to say, you know, Raj, I'm with you on that. Ben, I'm with you on that. But they're going to put one caveat on that, which is like, yes, we want to do that in an ideal world. However, here's sometimes what happens is we're aligned at a corporate level. We're aligned in this mission. We want to do the right thing. But we also have frontline workers. And someone's going to be hired who's like, let's say, you know, I talk to a lot of bank CMOs. So someone's going to be hired. They're at a branch. They're the person you walk up to the counter, the teller, And they maybe didn't get the whole message. So how do you do that? Because the problem is if they don't give a good customer experience, not because they're a bad person, but maybe they just didn't have the training to know what we're about and how to deliver it. And, you know, complicating things, maybe they have a customer who's speaking a different language and they've got to deliver it and there's this added challenge. How do you think about that? Because the problem is great customer experience doing the right thing. It's kind of a last mile kind of situation, meaning whatever they walk in that last mile, whoever they talk to, even with good intentions, if they can't deliver it, it's hard. And I know some people would say, you know, sounds great, but easier said than done.
0: I fully agree with uh, some of them who would say that. And hence, for us, at least here, my first order of business is is investing in our employees. That is the first order of business. So tech stacks, and I've I've come through tech stack world in my career, they're essentially commodities. You can get the same tech stack anywhere, anybody could. What differentiates are the people who use it and what they do with. And it's the same thing in terms of carrying your mission forward. Really investing in people. And that's several things. One, getting the right people. Two, giving them the the training that they need and the expectation setting. And most importantly, and this is where some of those CMOs might not have uh, the opportunity, is giving the resources time on task. Giving employees time on task so they can practice, test slowly, and not have to run before they're ready. is really important for me personally in in my journey is let's make sure that when they take the field, that they are going to be successful. If it means we have to delay them taking the field, it's okay. Because we care for the long run. And those are options and choices that not every company can make. And so I fully recognize some of the challenges that some may have. But to me, it's such a critical part of what you set up as expectation. Because once you deviate from the expectation, once you deviate from the standard and you change the standard, it's really hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And now you have to make a lot more exceptions, and a lot more choices. And it's a tough challenge. I fully agree with my fellow CMOs who might've gone through some of those challenges, but that's where the governance and the leadership of the company becomes really important to have those conversations to say, we could do this now, or we could do it a little later, but we do it the right way and we make those choices.
1: And of course, to your earlier point, if you are collaborating or hyper-collaborating with other members of your leadership team as CMO, maybe there's some understanding there. Maybe there's some understanding there like, yes, we could rush this out for this quarter. I want to drive results in this quarter. But from a longer term perspective, I think we ought to wait until Q3. And maybe there's a little bit understanding if you are collaborating and if there's maybe the currency of that collaboration is actually trust. If there's a high degree of trust within the organization, then maybe you can make some decisions that might be more long-term focused than maybe people would otherwise make. So Raj, final question for you. As in all of the episodes we do at Top CMO, we look at all different elements of marketing, all different elements of what it means to be a CMO. And we're trying to overall define a definition of the ideal top CMO and all the skills he or she should have what is one skill set that you utilize as a CMO that is maybe different or surprising or something that isn't normally like in the job description, but you think it's important to success in the role? That's the final question. I'll give you the final word.
0: Great question. I think what I do is I bring, I bring a combination of being easygoing and being intense on the right things that we need to be. So I have a very collaborative team. Everybody talks about the ideas that we need to best idea wins, a lot of trust within the team to execute on the things we need to execute. But we are very focused and intense on when things don't work to figure out what happened. That to me is different because you can learn a lot from tests that have failed. It's It's an important element that I try to do is to understand what tests actually didn't work. And I get a lot of learnings from that. So that is my differentiating skill that I bring in, is create an environment wherein failure is okay, but also create an environment where you learn from that failure so you can future-proof your business against those issues at least.
1: According to Raj Vavilala, the essence of marketing in a mission-centric organization is about emphasizing member welfare. word of mouth becomes your most important channel of marketing and customer experience, including how an existing customer experiences your marketing plays a critical role in shaping trust. Raj emphasizes the significance of being truthful, cautioning that short-lived gains from deceptive tactics could lead to longer term damage. Put another way, the heart of effective marketing lies in authentic connection valuable education of our audience, and making sure that our walk matches our talk. For Top CMO, I'm Ben Kaplan.
0: This was brought to you by Top Thought Leader. Find out more at topthoughtleader.com.